Ladies and gentlemen, the following segment of the podcast is presented exclusively by Hillsdale College. Now, in its 175th year, Hillsdale is a truly independent institution where learning is prized and intellectual enthusiasm is valued. Thank you for listening and my sincere appreciation to Hillsdale for their sponsorship. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877 877-381-3811. I did a quick review of some things that have been said about Donald Trump by journalists and by expert guests that newsrooms invite onto their programs, sometimes a few times, sometimes they're paid guests and contributors. He has been called Hitler, Stalin. Mussolini. He's been called a white supremacist, a racist, a bigot. This is on news programs. An anti-Semite, a dictator, a neo-Nazi, depraved, treasonous, demented, mentally ill, a serial liar, and compromised. These newsrooms have used such experts and witnesses as a porn actress, her lawyer, a neo-Nazi, an anti-Semitic professor, race-baiting professors, a psychiatrist, Bandy Lee, accused the president of mental illness, a phalanx of ex-Obama officials with their vicious allegations, never-Trumpers with their vicious allegations. The media have used propaganda. They have used pseudo-events. They have promoted Russia collusion and impeachment. And then they wonder why they're not trusted. They wonder why they're not trusted. The media are not destroying themselves. The media have destroyed themselves. They have destroyed themselves. Half of the country doesn't trust them. Half of the country finds them to be ideologues for the left. And half the country doesn't respect them. And why would you? You have hosts who've been homophobic. You have hosts. You have newspaper editors who've been anti-Semitic. You have newspapers like the New York Times that has a history of anti-Semitism. 
What are we to make of all this? Well, I tell you what we make of all this. This is not a free press. Just because people are free to say whatever they want, that's not a free press. And there's no self-policing anymore. There's no self-policing. Now, when the First Amendment was adopted, just to underscore a point I raised some months ago, when the First Amendment was adopted, particularly as it relates to freedom of the press, that applied to the national government or the federal government. There were still state laws in virtually every state that allowed people to sue for libel. There were libel laws, including people in the public. Public figures could sue. Public figures did sue. Again, these were various laws with various levels of defenses and so forth. And so there was a policing method. It wasn't chilling freedom of the press. We had a very fulsome and vocal press prior to the modern era, the modern media era. But you could still sue. Now, pretty much the Supreme Court stepped in with this case, New York Times versus Sullivan, and they reset the rules, making it virtually impossible, virtually impossible, for a public figure, let alone a politician or president, to win a case. Virtually impossible. Because, you see, the thinking was back then that these politicians would and could bring cases in order to basically overload the system against newspapers and so forth. But it didn't seem to affect the media very much. There was a vibrant media before 1965. It's a vibrant media in the early 60s and the 50s and the 40s and so forth. But now there's no policing mechanism. So somebody can go on television, dressed up as a journalist, and call the president Hitler. Now you know damn well, if we still had libel laws that could be used against somebody making an allegation like that, the president wouldn't be called Hitler, now would he? could still be very aggressive in your coverage and your characterization of a president, but Hitler, Stalin, white supremacist? Neo-Nazi, treasonous, mentally ill, those would all be actionable. Now, to say the pendulum has swung too far in the direction of the mass media is not to say that you oppose a vibrant free press. Quite the contrary. It's to say you support a vibrant free press. A press that needs to reform itself. A press that needs to get its focus back. The pursuit of objective truth. But when you have individuals in the media who become entertainment, when you have individuals in the media who are busy trying to promote themselves, not the news, and then supposed to be journalists, writing books about their subjects, this is unheard of, unless they retire. 
you can see. You can see how, how off the rails the media have become. Now we have the New York Times. The New York Times has a lot of explaining to do. But it's not going to explain anything. The New York Times has a lot of explaining to do. Because not only of its history, but even in recent days. Why would they hire somebody that they don't vet, who's an anti-Semite, and who is covering the senior editor desk for politics? And then two reporters go out and write this ridiculous piece, trying to position the New York Times, and cover up for their colleague, and then attack Trump and his supporters. That's propaganda. That's what that is. That's propaganda. The New York Times wants you to believe that the America of today began in 1619 with slavery. The vast majority of Americans have never owned slaves. You can go to 1619 or 1719 or 1819 or 1919. The vast majority of Americans did not own slaves. So why are we beginning in 1619? Because the New York Times has a narrative. That's why. And they're not only pushing that narrative through the media, they're pushing it into our schools. Because the National Education Association and the American Federation of Teachers run our schools. They run our classrooms, our assembly rooms, our cafeterias. They decide what books are going to be in the classroom for all intents and purposes. And they're part of the progressive movement. That's the narrative. So when Lawrence O'Donnell on MSNBC goes on the air, and you'll hear him in a minute, and says that basically Russian oligarchs, Russian oligarchs, were involved with the President of the United States in investments. And then uh, the Deutsche Bank has Donald Trump's tax returns. And that they reveal that co-signers of bank loans are Russian billionaires. A flat-out lie. Flat-out lie. He can apologize all he wants. If he could be sued effectively for defamation, that never would have come out of his mouth. So how does this better the news that we receive? How does this better inform the American people? When essentially... These so-called journalists and hosts, or whatever you want to call them, are free to basically say whatever the hell they want to. I'll be right back. Mark Levin. You know, our nation's oldest colleges were founded to teach students to seek truth, recognize what's beautiful, and hold up what is good. But the vast majority of them have abandoned their missions, locked in the grip of political correctness, They no longer allow free and open discourse. Rejecting the idea of objective truth, they peddle moral and cultural relativism. Thankfully, none of this applies to Hillsdale College. For almost two centuries, Hillsdale has remained true to its original mission, to provide sound learning of the kind essential to preserving civil and religious liberty and intelligent piety. Now, as Hillsdale celebrates its 175th year, 
It remains committed to offering its students the very best liberal arts education in the land, as well as to extending its mission nationwide through its many outreach efforts on behalf of liberty. These include free online courses, the publication of its Free Speech Digest and Primus, its Kirby Center for Constitutional Studies and Citizenship in Washington, D.C., and its Barney Charter School Initiative, which is helping to establish classical K-12 charter schools nationwide. Pursuing truth and defending liberty since 1844, this is Hillsdale College. And let me add, I think so much of Hillsdale College. I donated an original copy of a compilation of the Federalist Papers, which sit today as I speak at the Kirby Center. Hillsdale College, America's College. So here's Lawrence O'Donnell last night on MSNBC. Now keep in mind, MSNBC is a, an appendage of NBC. And NBC is owned by Comcast. Now, these companies have a responsibility for who they put on the air and who they put in front of a camera, don't they? And yet they don't seem to, do they? And so there's no self-policing. These people live in a bubble. They know that legally it's almost impossible to challenge them. And so this is where we are. We already press, we have a press that degrades itself each and every day, that exposes itself each and every day. Now, Lawrence O'Donnell should be fired, or at least suspended. I know other TV hosts say, don't do that, don't do that, because they're afraid that people will call for their heads too. To me, this is not about relativism. This is a firing offense. Mr. Producer, open your microphone. How often do I say we want to be right, we don't have to be first? Oh, all the time. We get a lot of stuff over the transom here, don't we? We do. And I get bring it to you and you go, no, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't know if that's accurate and so forth and so on. So, thank you, sir. I police myself. And if we're wrong, <coughs> excuse me, I don't give a half-ass apology. I give a full-throated apology. But I'm normally... Not wrong, because I'm careful. I'm not talking about debating issues. I'm talking about facts. Let's go ahead. Cut 14. Go. We begin tonight with the breaking news from Deutsche Bank today. The Deutsche Bank has Donald Trump's tax returns. That is not exactly what Deutsche Bank said in its redacted legal filing today, but it is what one source close to Deutsche Bank has revealed to me about the financial documents in the bank's possession. And so the words Donald Trump probably do appear in the redacted space in today's court filing. Deutsche Bank's lawyers told the Federal Court of Appeals in New York City, quote, the bank has in its possession tax returns in either draft or as filed form responsive to the subpoenas for redacted. Right there, that's probably where the words Donald Trump appear. Okay, so he doesn't know that. Now, by the way, this is why you have to be careful even when you make mortgage applications and so forth, what you give banks or financial institutions. They'll want everything from you. They'll want your tax returns and your divorce records, and they'll want uh, three months of uh, what? Uh, uh, your bank statements and on and on and on. And this is how people go around uh, these various uh, firewalls to get it. 
But that's not all he said. Cut 15, go. A source close to Deutsche Bank says that the Trump tax returns reveal that the president pays little to no income taxes in some years. And the source says that Deutsche Bank is in possession of loan documents that show Donald Trump has obtained loans with co-signers and that he would not have been able to obtain those loans without co-signers. The source close to Deutsche Bank says that the co-signers of Donald Trump's Deutsche Bank loans are Russian billionaires close to Vladimir Putin. If true, that would explain... Now let's stop right there. If true. Where did we hear that before? Where did we hear that before? The leaks. The leaks. From BuzzFeed, remember? People repeating them. If true, if true. About potential indictments. Or whatever it was. And even Mueller's office had to come out and say that's not true. If true. Those are two words that come out of the sleaziest mouths in the media. If true, that would explain. Go ahead. Every kind word Donald Trump has ever said about Russia and Vladimir Putin, if true, if true, that would be a significant factor in Vladimir Putin's publicly stated preference for presidential candidate Donald Trump over presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. But none of it was true. Now, how does this serve the public interest? A free press is supposed to belong to the American people. The media are so obsessed. They will lie. They will deceive. They will, if true. They'll rely on a porn actress, the porn actress's lawyer. They'll rely on a neo-Nazi, anti-Semitic professor, race-baiting professors, a psychiatrist. Ex-Obama officials, never Trumpers. How do these people contribute in the least to providing objective, truthful information to the American people so they can make rational decisions? How does turning a newsroom into a radical kook operation where the president is referred to as Hitler and Stalin treasonous and mentally ill and anti-Semitic and a racist and a bigot and a neo-Nazi and on and on and on. How does that serve the public? How does that provide us with information to make decisions about our own lives, our country, and so forth? And how does the endless degrading and demeaning and effort to destroy a duly elected president of the United States help this country in any respect? The people who are now in our modern mass media are the antithesis of a free press. I'll be right back. The good, the true, the beautiful. Think about those concepts for a second. What do they mean? How can one begin to understand these high and noble ideals? It starts with the right kind of education. This kind of education used to be common, but it's become increasingly rare. It used to be that college students, young people, would study comprehensively a variety of subjects from philosophy to politics to biology, a core curriculum, in other words. Sadly, that's not the case these days. 
But I can tell you about one place where young people study like this, Hillsdale College. At Hillsdale, students work hard, spending more than half their time studying the core. The result? Hillsdale alumni are leaders with intelligence and character, ready to make a difference in their families, communities, and country. But it all starts with that core. The core that develops moral and intellectual virtue. The core that helps them understand the good, the true, and the beautiful. Find out more about what education is meant to be at levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. Mark Levin, a champion of freedom. You know, you're one of the greatest champions of freedom in this country, if not in the English-speaking world, Mark. Call Mark at 877-381-3811. Gee, we don't hear from the vice president anymore, do we? Now, ladies and gentlemen, on freedom of the press, it was just announced minutes ago to me, will have been on the New York Times bestseller list now 14 weeks in a row. In all forms, e-books, e-audio, hardback, and so forth, it has sold almost half a million copies. Now, why do you think that is? Because the people are upset about what's happening to their, to their freedom of the press. You know, in his concurring opinion, I hope I'm not boring everybody, on February 19, 2019, Supreme Court case of Catherine May McKee versus William Cosby, Justice Thomas, in a concurring opinion, he addressed this issue of the New York Times versus Sullivan. And he said, the court here addresses the extent to which the constitutional protections for free speech and press limit a state's power to award damages in a libel action brought by a public figure against critics of official conduct. Thomas said the court took it upon itself to define the proper accommodation between two competing interests, the law of defamation and the freedoms of speech and press protected by the First Amendment. It consulted a variety of materials to assist it in its analysis, general propositions about the value of free speech and the inevitability of false statements, and all sorts of materials. And these materials led the court to promulgate a federal rule that prohibits a public official from recovering damages for a defamatory falsehood relating to his official conduct, unless he proves that the statement was made with actual malice, that is, with knowledge that it was false or with reckless disregard of whether it was false or not. So in 1964, although the court held that it, its newly minted actual malice rule was required by the First and Fourth Amendments, it made no attempt to base that rule on the original understanding of those provisions. In other words, they're nowhere in the Constitution. And Clarence Thomas said the New York Times case was the first major step in what proved to be a seemingly irreversible process of constitutionalizing the entire law of libel and slander. And then the court expanded the actual malice rule to all defamed public figures. The court also extended the actual malice rule to criminal libel prosecutions and even restricted the situation in which private figures could recover for defamation against media defendants. None of these decisions made a sustained effort to ground their holdings in the Constitution's original meaning. As the court itself acknowledged, the rule enunciated in the New York Times case, New York Times v. Sullivan, is largely a judge-made rule of law, the content of which is given meaning 
through the evolutionary process of common law adjudication. Only Justice Byron White grappled with the historical record, and he concluded they are wholly insufficient grounds for scuttling the libel laws of the states in such wholesale fashion to say nothing of deprecating the reputation interest of ordinary citizens and rendering them powerless to protect themselves. The constitutional libel rules adopted by the Supreme Court in the New York Times case and its progeny broke sharply from the common law of libel, and there are sound reasons to question whether the First and Fourteenth Amendments displaced this body of common law. Justice Thomas is our greatest justice right now, that's for certain, and he will go down in history as one of the greatest because he dares to think about the Constitution, not just stare decisis, that is precedent. There are sound reasons to question, he writes, whether either the First or Fourteenth Amendment as originally understood encompasses an actual malice standard for public figures or otherwise displaces vast swaths of state defamation law. Historical practice further suggests the protections for free speech and a free press, whether embodied in state constitutions, the First Amendment, or the Fourteenth, did not abrogate the common law of libel. Public officers and public figures continue to be able to bring civil libel suits for unprivileged statements without showing proof of actual malice as a condition for liability. The New York Times case pointed only to opposition surrounding the Sedition Act of 1798 and nothing more. And this Supreme Court decision, which was intended wrongly and unwittingly, uh, resulted in creating a cocoon and immunity for individuals to say virtually whatever they want to say about other individuals, including public figures, including the President of the United States. And I just want the Levin audience, you to understand, that is new. For 175 years before that 1964 decision, that was not the case. For 175 years, that was not the case. Do we have a freer, more objective, more informative media today than we did back then? The answer is no. Of course, they're freer to say whatever they want. But the quality of the so-called news has suffered badly. There's no self-policing. And as Ray Donovan said... Where do I go to get my reputation back? There's nowhere to go to get your reputation back. Nowhere. There was a piece years ago written about me in Politico. One of the people involved was this Kenneth Vogel. And they tried to develop this case that somehow uh, I was receiving money or hiding money from book sales of a book that had been out for five years because one of the conservative groups was using it for membership purposes or something. It was so bizarre and so perverse. And I've never told this before. I wanted to sue him. And I wanted to sue Politico. I was so furious. 
And then I sat down with an expert. This is how I know about this case and the other cases related to New York versus Sullivan. A litigation expert in this field. And he said to me, you're going to lose. I said, but I'm telling the truth. He said, it doesn't matter. Truth isn't the test. You have to prove there's actual malice. And it's almost impossible when a judge gives out his his guidance to the jury to win. So don't waste your money. So, of course, I defended myself on the air, but I really wanted to bring this person and this organization into federal court, and I couldn't. So in addition to promoting a dishonest, deceitful media, it prevents people from having a, 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 a fair playing field and even a just playing field to duke it out on the facts and the law. Because your hands are tied behind your back and your feet are tied in front of you. The standard is so or virtually insurmountable. That's not what the First Amendment says. Congress shall make no law. It didn't say the Supreme Court could rule and make a law blowing out hundreds of years of common law, blowing out state law. You know, a person's reputation means everything to that person. Think of your own lives. Think of your own workplace. Think of the interactions you have with friends, family, even strangers. Your reputation is everything. Everything. And if somebody's out to destroy your reputation because they're pushing an ideology and they're telling lies or half-truths, which are lies in the end, and to have really no recourse... That's not justice. That's not balance. And so that's what we have today. And so you have people like Joe Scarborough and Brian Stelter, two of the worst, who go on the air and say some of the most poisonous, poisonous, vile, outrageous things imaginable about people with whom they disagree. Hitler? Neo-Nazi? Really? President of the United States? Mentally ill? Treasonous? Compromised? It's appalling. That's why I believe in the end what's going to happen. They've already destroyed their reputation and credibility. Now the question is whether they will be destroyed financially. Not because I say they should be. The question is whether they will be. Now something surprising has happened. The Washington Post was going bankrupt. It was going out of business. Not because of technological changes. This is some years ago. But because everybody knows what the Washington Post is going to say 90% of the time. On the news pages. Everybody knows the Washington Post is pro-Democrat, liberal status progressive. Everybody knows it. And so a lot of people want nothing to do with it. But in comes the richest man on the planet, Jeffrey Bezos, and he buys it. Does he buy it because it's a good investment? No. Why did he buy it? In my opinion, 
because he knows he will not receive harsh treatment from the Washington Post, which has enormous influence in and around Washington, D.C. That is government, politicians, bureaucrats, the antitrust division, and on and on. So the Washington Post is insulated from the typical economic model, business model. So there's no policing whatsoever. New York Times, same thing. Multi-billionaire out of Mexico, a telecommunications magnet. Bought 17, 20% of it. And the New York Times was going under. Why was it going under? Same reason. Same reason. When you're playing to a hardcore Democrat Party base, you're excluding everybody else. And now they're protected with a bubble. CNN. CNN standing on its own can't survive. But it doesn't stand on its own. It's owned by AT&T, one of the biggest international corporations on the face of the earth. MSNBC can't stand on its own two feet. It's owned by another, one of the biggest cable corporations on the face of the earth, Comcast. Fox is actually owned by a man who started out with a couple of newspapers in Australia. And then expanded his enterprises and his media and entertainment and on and on and on. But he didn't do it the way these other businesses did. He started with media and grew from there. And Fox is a profit-making endeavor. Its ratings are, certainly on the opinion side, are unmatched. Month after month after month after month after month. Not so with CNN and MSNBC. But they don't have to be. I do a Sunday show at 10 p.m. Eastern Time. I have higher ratings on one of my strong Sunday shows than they have on any of their primetime shows on CNN. And my 10 p.m. show beats CNN and MSNBC combined. Combined. If I were getting the ratings that they have on CNN and MSNBC, I wouldn't be on the air any longer. Because it's a real media company. But on CNN, it doesn't matter. And on MSNBC, it doesn't matter. And the New York Times, they can hire an anti-Semite. They can put out these disgusting anti-Semitic cartoons. They can side with Hamas against Israel. The way that they were silent about the Holocaust, basically helping to prop up the Third Reich. Nothing affects them. Nothing affects them. And if you dare question them or legitimately challenge them, then you're dismissed as a Trumper or as anti-free speech. See how it works? I'll be right back. Mark Levin. Since its founding in 1844, Hillsdale College has provided students with sound learning of the kind essential to preserving our civil and religious liberty. Now, I want to tell you about Imprimus, the free monthly speech digest of Hillsdale College. Imprimus is dedicated to educating citizens 
and promoting civil and religious liberty by covering important cultural, economic, political, and educational issues. First published in 1972, Imprimus is one of America's most widely read publications in support of liberty, with more subscribers, 3.9 million, than the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. And recent Imprimus publications have addressed issues like free speech, the regulation of big tech, mental illness, and the American medical insurance system. And because America's founding principles are so important, Hillsdale offers Imprimus absolutely free of charge to anyone who requests it. That's right. You can subscribe to Imprimus for free. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to visit imprimus.hillsdale.edu for your free subscription. That's Imprimus, I-M-P-R-I-M-I-S dot Hillsdale dot E-D-U. Welcome to Hillsdale. tonight 9 30 p.m eastern time 6 30 p.m pacific that's how that works i see kirsten gillibrand dropped out of the race boring the great paul bedard here in the washington examiner and the latest sign that major american media outlets are losing the public support Majority believe it is appropriate for politicians to criticize reporters and hold them to the same scrutiny as those they cover a new Rasmussen report survey also said most voters believe the average journalist is liberal and fewer conservative. And by the way, all the surveys I could find, and they're in Chapter 1 of Unfreedom of the Press, that's what it shows. Period. The survey is an indictment of the media at a time when liberal outlets, such as CNN and the New York Times, are stepping up their attack on President Trump and congressional Republicans. The outlets are also complaining about Trump's criticism of them, and called out Trump surrogates who are using social media to point out the bias of journalists. But, said Rasmussen, voters believe that reporters are fair game for criticism. The survey analysis said 61% of likely U.S. voters think reporters at major news groups like CNN, Fox News, and the New York Times are public figures who deserve scrutiny. 19% disagree. 51% said it is appropriate for elected officials to criticize specific reporters and news organizations. And 39% view the criticism as a threat to freedom of the press. Well, that's the marijuana crowd, the last one there. All right, folks, I shall return. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877 877-381-3811. 877-381-3811. The Justice Department Inspector General, according to the Byron York, is preparing to release a report on the conduct of the fired FBI Director James Comey, according to a number of sources with knowledge of the situation. He says the specific timing of the report's release is not clear. Now, I'll tell you what I hear, and I'm telling you I don't know for certain, but I hear it might be released tomorrow. The Comey report is separate from a larger Inspector General report on the DOG's handling of the Trump-Russia probe. That report 
sometimes referred by Republicans as an investigation into FISA abuse, is expected to be released later. He says it's not clear why Horowitz, the Inspector General Michael Horowitz, chose to write a separate report on Comey. Well, it's clear to me it's a big topic. Among other things, Comey's been under investigation for his handling of several memos he wrote memorializing conversations with President Trump. The memos began in January 2017 when Trump was still president-elect and continued until April 2017, the month before Trump summarily, summarily fired the FBI director. Now, by the way, that was a no-brainer. When you prepare memos on the government dime while you're a government official, that's the official property of the United States government. It's not your plaything. You don't get to take it home. You don't get to make copies and take them home. You don't get to leak them to your favorite law professor, then leaks them to the New York Times. Comey's memos were, at the least, confidential FBI documents, and at most, in some cases, classified. Comey told Congress he sent some of the memos to a friend for the purpose of being leaked to the New York Times. Comey hoped media reports would set off a firestorm that would ultimately result in the appointment of a special counsel to investigate the Trump-Russia matter. That's precisely what happened with the appointment of Robert Mueller. See, Comey really is the one who would be doing prison time, in my view. By the way, what the hell is happening with uh, General Flynn? I worry about that guy. I worry about him, his family, his finances. It's not clear what conclusions Horowitz has reached about Comey's actions. Horowitz earlier referred the Comey memo matter to the Justice Department for possible prosecution, but Justice officials uh, declined to go forward. Comey <coughs> excuse me, was also part of the process, much scrutinized by Republicans, through which the FBI sought and received secret court warrant to wiretap short-term Trump campaign advisor Carter Page. Mr. Producer... That show I did with Pete Hegseth, I guess it's two and a half years now. Would you have that handy after the break? And I believe it was two segments we did it in. See if you can track that down. I'm putting him on the spot, which is not fair. But uh, Sources say the Comey report will deal with Comey's memos and not his broader role in the Trump-Russia investigation. As for Harwood's main report, it's still unclear precisely what it'll cover when it will be made public. You know, it's pretty good. This Harwood's keeps things under wraps. At least he seems to. So I got to thinking the other day. <coughs> I meant to tell Mr. Producer. You remember that? Two and a half years ago, you Levinites, I know you do. He's going to grab it. You know what? I think I'll play some of this in the next segment. I'm just doing this on the fly because it's something that, uh, that I feel is compelling. In anticipation of the Comey report, in anticipation of the broader Inspector General report, in anticipation of the uh, U.S. Attorney's investigation from Connecticut. This also goes to the press. I came under enormous attacks from every major press outlet and the comedy shows. And I can count on one hand the number of people in this business who defended me. Even old friends did not. But I can count on one hand. Because they were scared. And now, of course, they all take credit for it. And I remember doing the show, and then my buddy Joel Pollock over there at uh, Breitbart, 
he wrote up what I said and added a few thoughts of his own and then somehow worked its way into the Oval Office. And remember, the president of the United States said, Obama wiretapped me in so many words. And he was attacked. You mean Obama physically wiretapped you? That word wiretap came out of a New York Times headline. It didn't come out of my mind or Pollock's mind or the president's mind. That's what they said. That's what they said. And the idea, as we discussed with Andy McCarthy last week, the idea that Obama didn't know anything about this when a counterintelligence investigation is an investigation for and on behalf of the President of the United States, unlike a criminal investigation, is absurd that the President wouldn't know about this. And of course, I knew he knew a lot about it because the record I pulled together was in the public record. It was in the public record. And so I think it's worth reminding. Again, I don't do this stuff to pat myself on the head. About, you know, I said this in 1938. But who cares? It just gives perspective. It's easy to run with the pack. It's easy to be part of the sheep, the herd, the group think. I run in the other direction. Not because I'm an oddball, but because I know if they're running that way, something's not right. They're running for the wrong exit. They're running for the wrong exit. And what's so important about this is it brings together all the points that we discuss. Media coverage. The outrageous abuse of power by the Obama administration. The historically unique targeting of Donald Trump as a candidate, as a president-elect and now as a president. It's very important to continue to pull these things together, pull them together. And of course, the reason the media pushed the Russia collusion narrative was because the media led the Russia collusion narrative. But as an old justice guy, when I was reading these newspapers, the first time I broke this was, I think, that Thursday, Mr. Producer, on my radio show. Thursday, I was off that Friday, and then that Sunday. What was it, March 3rd or something or other? I don't remember the date. March 5th, 2017. And, of course, as soon as I did it on the radio program and then did it on the Sunday, Fox and Friends with Pete Hegseth and did it on Monday night with Hannity, I came under brutal attack, and of course, uh, the backbenchers said, you know what, I came up with that first. I thought about that first. But boy, oh boy, this business is weird. It's very, very weird. It's very important that this inspector general put together a solid report about what took place. And it's very important that the U.S. attorney appointed by Attorney General Barr leave no rock unturned, as they say. Look everywhere. No leaf unturned, no rock. Ah, whatever. Very important. Because when so-called public officials drag a country through this, when they try to interfere with an election, they need to go to prison. You understand the Obama administration interfered with the 2016 election to a greater extent than the Russians? Do you understand that? The Obama administration. So when I hear these Democrats say, does it not bother you that the Russians were interfering with it? It bothers me a lot. Does it not bother you that your party did? And Obama, he's out there buying three homes 
By, oh, by the way, he bought a $5 million home, give or take, in Rancho Mirage in Palm Springs. $8.1 million home in the wealthiest area in Washington, D.C., not far from Bezos. And now a $15 million home on Martha's Vineyard. May I ask you a question? Why hasn't Obama purchased a home in a black neighborhood? Look, I think it's a fair question. Why have not Michelle and Barack Obama purchased a home in a black neighborhood? Is it possible that they have white privilege? And yet they lecture us, the American people. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. You wake up in the morning feeling sluggish and have to drag yourself through your day. Do you feel bloated, tired, and out of shape? Eating healthy is a habit, but most of us don't really know exactly what we should be eating, right? How much we should be eating and how to properly prepare it. This is why I drink Field of Greens every morning before I start my day. Just one scoop of Field of Greens has a full serving of real USDA certified organic fruits and vegetables. Helps boost your immunity using antioxidants, prebiotics, and probiotics. Now this is real food, not some fake supplement lab powder. Just read the nutrition facts panel on the side. Go to BrickHouseLevin.com and get 15% off your first order with the offer code LEVIN. Now, you know you're not going to start cooking fresh fruits and vegetables, so let's not pretend. Just get one full cup of fruits and one full cup of vegetables every day with Field of Greens. Go to BrickHouseLevin.com, BrickHouse, L-E-V-I-N.com, offer code LEVIN. March 5th, 2017, Sundays, Fox and Friends. I'm with Pete Hegseth in this is how it all started on cable TV. Go ahead. The evidence is overwhelming. This is not about President Trump's tweeting. This is about the Obama administration's spying. And the question isn't whether it's spied. We know they went to the FISA court twice. The question is, who did they spy on? The extent of the spying. That is, the Trump campaign, the Trump transition, Trump surrogates. And I want to walk you through this, the American people. Exhibit one. Exhibit one. This is all public. Head Street, two separate sources with links to the counterintelligence community have confirmed that the FBI sought and was granted a Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act court. This is spying uh, in October, giving counterintelligence permission to examine the activity of, quote, U.S. persons in Donald Trump's campaign with ties to Russia. Let me go on. This isn't me. They say the first FISA request, sources say, name Trump was denied back in June, denied by the court. Mm -hmm. But the second was drawn more narrowly and was granted in October after evidence was presented of a server possibly related to the Trump campaign and its alleged links to two banks. Now, sources suggest that a FISA warrant was granted to look at the full content of emails and other related documents that may concern U.S. persons. Now, I know people are hung up with Trump's word wiretapping. Well, how'd they get access to this server information? Does it really matter? If it was wiretapping, electronic surveillance, or whatever now, it was. Uh, I'm live. Keep in mind, I did the original show Thursday, which led to the president tweeting what he tweeted. But this show is 
the first cable show in which this is discussed as I raised it Sunday morning. Go ahead. The Guardian, a well-known right-wing British paper. Here it is. Uh, quote, the Guardian has learned the FBI applied for a warrant from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court over the summer in order to monitor four members of the Trump team suspected of irregular contacts with Russian officials. Keep in mind, this is during a presidential election. The sitting president, the incumbent party, is now investigating the presidential candidate of the Republican Party and his campaign to some extent. The FISA court turned down the application asking FBI counterintelligence investigators to narrow its focus. According to one report, the FBI was finally granted a warrant in October. Exhibit 3, McClatchy, another well-known right-wing newspaper. Here they have the agency's headline, FBI, five other agencies, five other Obama administration agencies probe possible covert Kremlin aid to Trump. The FBI and five other law enforcement intelligence agencies have collaborated for months in an investigation into Russian attempts to influence the November election, including whether money from Kremlin uh, covertly aided presidential-elect Donald Trump. Two people familiar with the matter said the agencies involved in the inquiry are the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, the Justice Department, the Treasury Department's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, and representatives of the director of the National Intelligence. Are you telling me Barack Obama didn't know it was Mark, going on as in six go, agencies? As you hold go on, on hold Mark, on, how are hold you on. Do, okay, keep going. I'm not done. I need to make the case. Because the media seems to be confused about their own reporting. New York Times, another well-known liberal outlet, intercepted Russian communications part of inquiry into Trump associates January 19. The FBI is leading the investigations aided by the NSA, the CIA, Treasury Department's Financial Crimes Unit. The investigators have accelerated their efforts in recent weeks, but have found no exclusive, conclusive evidence of wrongdoing. Listen to this. One official said intelligence reports based on some of the wiretap communications have been provided to the White House. This is the New York Times. Another right-wing outlet. Four. Another right-wing outlet, Let's yeah. continue. <laughs> New York Times again. NSA gets more latitude to share intercepted communications. In the final days of the Obama administration, uh, the administration has expanded the power of the NSA to share globally intercepted personal communications with the government's 16 other intelligence agencies before applying privacy protections. Now, why would they do this on the way out the door? Well, March 1, Exhibit 6, Obama administration rushed to preserve intelligence of Russian election hacking. In the Obama administration's last days, listen to this, some White House officials scrambled to spread information about Russian efforts to undermine the presidential election and about possible contacts between associates of President-elect Trump and Russians across the government. I'm not done. <laughs> Exhibit 7, New York Times. Flynn is said to have talked to Russians about sanctions Trump took office. Well, where'd they get this information? Well, Mark, you know, the FISA court, they're always monitoring the, uh, the uh, Russian ambassador. And so how do we know that? Maybe they are, maybe they're not. But there's an awful lot of other activity. Sure. Here we have Washington Post. One more. Washington Post, March 2nd. U.S. investigators have examined contacts Attorney General Sessions had with Russian officials during the time he was advising Donald Trump's campaign. The focus of the U.S. counterintelligence investigation has been on communication between Trump campaign officials mm -hmm. and Russia. Listen to this. The inquiry involving Sessions is examining his contacts while serving as Trump's foreign policy advisor 
in the spring and summer of 2016. This has been going on for a year. All right, I'm live now. This is what uh, broke the whole thing wide open. My Thursday radio show followed by my appearance on Fox and Friends Sunday. That's, which was March 5th? Sunday, Mr. Producer? Okay, so the radio show would have been second, the second, March 2nd, uh, 2017. That's the first when all, that all this was put together. And now we know much more. Now we know it was actually worse. But I knew the FBI was leaking because this had to come out of the FBI, their counterintelligence activity, because it couldn't come from any other place. Second cut. Go ahead. How confident are you that this new this investigation, which was on Russian so-called Russian hacking, but now the White House says this morning will be broadened to looking into executive overreach? How confident Look, are you they will find something there? I don't know, but they already found something. The issue isn't whether the Obama administration spied on the Trump campaign or transition or certain of its surrogates. The issue is the extent of it. Mm-hmm. They went into court a second time. They were so aggressive. They waited four or five months. They go back in October, weeks before the general election. They narrow their request. All of a sudden, we have leaks coming out on Flynn. Then we have a, oh, a horrible meeting that took place between Sessions and so forth. And I'm telling you, as a former chief of staff to an attorney general of the United States in the Reagan administration, these are police state tactics. Now, what did Barack Obama know? He knew everything I just read to you apart, apart from one or two articles. You know how I know? It's in the newspapers. It's right there. So Barack Obama not only knew this, but he gets a daily intelligence briefing. And let me tell you something about daily intelligence briefings. If your attorney general and your FBI is going to the FISA court to get a warrant to investigate aspects of an opposition party in the middle of a general election campaign, how much you want to bet the president of the United States knew that? I don't want to bet his opinion. There we go, ladies and gentlemen. A little bit of memory lane, but the reason is we have other reports that are coming out soon. And the attacks that I received as a result of that as a kook, a conspiracy theorist, a right-winger, and all the rest are all predictable. And I had to fight them for the following week. I'll be right back. With a daily fake news dump pouring through your TV, mobile phones and computers, you may have missed some real news like the recent study in the journal Cell Metabolism. Scientists suspected a correlation between growing rates of obesity and processed foods, but what this study discovered was that these foods also appear to lead people to overeat. Here's the bottom line. You need fresh fruits and vegetables in your diet, which is why I recommend that you start taking Field of Greens by Brickhouse Nutrition. Just one scoop of Field of Greens has a full serving of real USDA-certified organic fruits and vegetables. It helps boost your immunity using antioxidants, prebiotics, and probiotics. This is real food, not some fake supplement lab powder. Just read the nutrition facts panel on the side. Go to BrickhouseLevin.com, that's BrickhouseLevin.com, and you'll get 15% off your first order with the offer code LEVIN. You know you're not going to start cooking fresh fruits and vegetables, so let's not pretend. Just get one full cup of fruits and one full cup of vegetables every day with Field of Greens. Go to BrickhouseLevin.com, BrickhouseLevin.com, offer code LEVIN. The good, the true, the beautiful. Think about those concepts for a second. What do they mean? How can one begin to understand these high and noble ideals? Well, 
Folks, it starts with the right kind of education, an educational institution. This kind of education used to be common, but it's become increasingly rare. used to be that college students, young people, would study comprehensively a variety of subjects, from philosophy to politics to biology, from literature to history to theology. A core curriculum, in other words. Sadly, that's not the case these days. But I can tell you about one place where young people study like this, Hillsdale College. At Hillsdale, students work hard, spending more than half of their time studying the core. The result? Hillsdale alumni are leaders with intelligence and character, ready to make a difference in their families, communities, and our country. But it all starts with that core. The core that every student takes. The core that develops moral and intellectual virtue. The core that helps them understand the good, the true, and the beautiful. It all starts with that core. And find out more about what education is meant to be at levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. All right, Mr. Producer, let me pull up. uh, Do I have my call screen here? Who do you recommend that I speak to? Tony in Maryland, the great WMAL, WMAL. Go right ahead, sir. Hi, Mark. I'm a second-time caller, and I have an idea. I'm a financial analyst, and you were talking about AT&T and Comcast. And God, I hope someone does this. They have annual meetings where you can put on the proxy uh, information to be voted on. Why not put on the proxy? And I hope someone does this. Why not put on the proxy that you want to change the format of CNN News? Well, let let me ask you something. I was at a Convention of States event over the weekend, and a number of people came up to me and they said, what affected us and made us activists was when somebody called you and said what we need to do and what somebody ought to do, and you stopped them and you said, I wrote a whole damn book on this subject. It took 16 months of my life. What do you mean we? What are you going to do? So, Tony, what are you going to do? like to do it. Unfortunately, I sold all my shares of AT. Now, you know how that works. You can buy one share. Okay. No, you have to buy 100 shares. You have to Well, then buy 100 them. shares. You see, already you have all your obstacles created. Okay. Somebody else is not going to do it, Tony. You need to do it. I understand. I understand. I will So go do it, it and then report back to us. Okay. All right. Okay. Seriously, go do it and then report back to us. Okay, you're right. Absolutely. You're All right, right, brother. And I'll be very happy to put you on and tell us what happened. It'll be fun, too. Oh, you, you, believe me, you'll know. You'll be the first person to get the proxy. I will send it to you personally so you can look at it. No, you go ahead and fill it out, do your thing, and tell us about it. Thank you for your call. There's no point in calling me and say, you know what you ought to do, Mark? You know what we ought to do? That means nothing to me. How about, you know what I'm going to do? There are millions of us. You know what I'm going to do, Mark? That's the way you get things done. Uh, you know what we ought to do, and then you feel good, and you go out to McDonald's, and hey, I did my part. No, we didn't do our part. You know, when I had, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, folks, Dr., uh, what's your name? I don't remember. Lee. Bandy X. Lee on the program yesterday, and obviously that's gone viral, I mentioned to her this 
Magazine, the Volume 1, Issue 5, from September slash October 1964, really right before the uh, presidential election. And they were really destroying Barry Goldwater, destroying him. And this magazine came out. It was not a tabloid magazine. It was a magazine that came out, published by leftist editor and publisher Ralph Ginsberg. And it was called Fact, colon. 1,189 psychiatrists say Goldwater is psychologically unfit to be president. And the media glommed onto this because they hated Goldwater. And I thought last night, you know, I mentioned this to you. Let me read a little bit this to you. It's very difficult to find this edition now. I mean, I had to work hard to find it. As you know, when I write my books, I look for original sources. If I can get them, and I got it. And this is what they wrote. America is a strong country. She has survived presidents like Grant and Eisenhower, whose level of intelligence in civilian affairs was what one would expect of generals. So listen to this. And it has survived a president like Harding, who did not even have the excuse of being a general. It has the, had the strength to survive paranoics like Huey Long, Forrestal, and McCarthy, who achieved such great power and influence in political life they were seriously considered for the presidency. It has survived totalitarian, semi-secret, quasi-military groups like the Ku Klux Klan and the Nazi Bund and the Communist Party. But now, for the first time in her history, America is facing an awesome combination of all three threats. In Barry Goldwater's candidacy on a major party ticket, America faces the possibility of electing a president whose grasp of international affairs matches Harding's whose personality traits are reminiscent of Farstall's and McCarthy's, and who is backed by a well-organized, blindly ruthless, totalitarian, secretive, and powerful movement. See, they've hated you for a long time, folks. It is the very combination of these facts that makes an investigation into the mental condition of the Republican candidate so crucial. Goldwater's lack of intelligence in itself would not be catastrophic. An ability to make decisions combined with good sense plus a gift for appointing good advisors can make up for it. Nor is it a question of mental health per se. Few of the heads of government of any nation at any time can be considered paragons of mental health. Even Goldwater's two nervous breakdowns are not in themselves sufficient cause for panic, although on the basis of them alone, Goldwater would be excluded from high positions in the fields he admires most. Big business which would refuse to appoint him to a high corporate post in the military, which would deny him access to top security material. But Mr. Goldwater's case is not one of an isolated mental incident, nor is the question merely whether or not he suffers from mental illness. Like physical sickness, mental illness can be a variety of totally different afflictions, some of which would have no significant bearing on the presidency. Mr. Goldwater's illness is not just an emotional maladjustment or a mild neurosis or a queerness. As emphatically stated by many of the leading psychiatrists in this country, the pattern of his behavior is ominous. From his sadistic child pranks, childhood pranks to his cool pra- uh, cruel practical jokes today, from his nervous breakdowns under pressure in his 20s to his present-day withdrawals and escapades in time of crisis. 
From his obsessive preoccupation with firearms in his youth to his present fantasies about brandishing nuclear weapons to scare his enemies. From his conviction that he's surrounded by deadly enemies at home, whether Ruther, Rockefeller, the American press, or someone who's out to kill him, to his belief that every Russian ballerina is a spy, Goldwater shows unmistakable symptoms of paranoia. The paranoiac has delusions of persecution. In many areas, he is completely divorced from reality. Paints a picture of the world which fits his needs. A world in which he and a few faithful are the good guys and all the other bad guys have to be annihilated. He sees enemies everywhere, trusts no one completely, and suspects even his closest friends of betraying him. He's rigid and dogmatic in his beliefs and cannot tolerate ambiguities is obstinate, uncompromising, and rebellious, not for the sake of principle, but for fear that a show of imagined weakness will permit his enemies to take advantage of him. And he's willing to pay with his own life and with the lives of others in order to prove that he is, a, is fearless and strong. Clearly, paranoia is not just any mental disease. In a leader who commands the most powerful nation and the most destructive arsenal in history, it constitutes nothing short of mortal danger to mankind. A little over 30 years ago, a paranoic with a charismatic effect on his audiences supported by an extremist, highly patriotic group was democratically elected to the highest executive position in the government of his country. His name was Adolf Hitler. Now you know where Dr. Lee gets some of her ideas. Is it possible to determine conclusively without a psychiatric interview on the basis of what is known about him, whether Goldwater is paranoid? The life and actions of a presidential candidate are so completely exposed through TV, through press interviews, and both with himself and with members of his family, and through the endless study of his past by friends and enemies, that a comprehensive psychiatric portrait definitely does emerge. Doesn't that sound like Dr. Lee to you, Mr. Producer? But one need not subscribe to psychiatric theories to believe that something is emotionally disturbed and a man who, dis- who can describe Russia as a, giant, as a uh, giant of a man, maybe 6 feet 10 inches tall, weighing 275 pounds, trim and hard as nails, who with one swipe of his hand could render me, well, finished. But the giant never bothered me because I had in my possession a pistol. And one need not know the name of Freud in order to wonder whether a man who constantly and compulsively must prove his daring and masculinity is a man fit to lead. And fit to lead America in the world in this day of the bomb. All one has to do is look at the record, the life record of Barry Goldwater today, the record compiled mostly by his friends and admirers. It speaks for itself. This is just the beginning. It is a horrendous attack on the man. And it goes on page after page after page. Now, what they do in the end of this publication is they have comments from psychiatrists. They sought out psychiatrists. They sent a survey to uh, some 12,000 psychiatrists. And about 1,200 responded, 1,189. <clears throat> and they had very, very nasty comments. Your questionnaire cannot really be answered because whatever psychopathology Goldwater may have is not that overt that one can make a diagnosis by merely observing him on TV or reading what he writes. 
In recent years, the American voter has demanded and received many details about the illnesses of presidents and has taken these factors into consideration. In like manner, I believe such information should also be made available about Senator Goldwater's illnesses. I've been a registered Republican since I was able to vote, but I'll not be able to vote for Barry Goldwater. It's my professional opinion. He's emotionally too unstable to guide the destiny of this nation because of his past history, background, and ambivalent attitude. I do not believe Barry Goldwater is psychologically fit to serve as President of the United States. I'm reading different, different comments. Seems unaware of some aspects of reality. That the Russians have the bomb too, and the state's rights are usually a cover-up for bigots. On and on and on. Goldwater was furious. Absolutely furious. This was a contemptible, contemptible attack on him. And he was being attacked by Democrats, by commercials from LBJ with the atomic bomb and all the rest. So he sued the publisher and the magazine. The magazine was called Fact. The publisher again, Ralph Ginsburg. And he won. I think he won like $125,000 or $150,000, whatever it was. And the magazine had to fold. And this case was grandfathered in before it was afflicted with the New York Times versus Sullivan decision. And one. This is how you hold the media to account. Judges and juries know how to handle frivolous lawsuits. They do it every day, every walk of life, every kind of case, criminal and civil. There's no reason to immunize and exempt people who work for media corporations from libel suits. There's no reason to have such a high bar that they're really impossible to win, given the preposterous standard that the Supreme Court has put in place. And I believe this has been very, very damaging to freedom of the speech, freedom of the press. I'll be right back. Lovin. If you have a moment, I want you all to go to BrickHouseLevin.com. Just go there and click on the Buy Now button so you can read the reviews. Over 1,200 five-star reviews, I might add. But this one caught my attention from Steve in Denver. I'm upset with Mark because he's got me hooked on Field of Greens. What a great product. Thank you, BrickHouse, for your amazing product and great customer service. I'm a monthly subscriber, and I won't live without it. And you're welcome, Steve. And subscribing is smart. You save money that way. Field of Greens is made with real USDA organic fruits and vegetables and helps boost your immunity using antioxidants, prebiotics, and probiotics. Plus, they offer a 100% satisfaction guarantee or your money back. Go to BrickHouseLevin.com or call 833-RING-BHN. Get 15% off your first order with promo code LEVIN. That's BrickHouseLevin.com or call 833-RING-BHN, promo code LEVIN. Ladies and gentlemen, 
The summer inventory clearance sale for Chamonix is here, but it's ending soon. Right now, when you order Genesel Jawline Treatment, you'll get the classic Genesel for bags and puffiness. Free. Free today. Here's Cheryl from Fort Wayne, Indiana. Wow, the very first time I tried it, I could immediately feel the tightening sensation. I've been using it for a week, and the results are very visible. My jawline looks so much younger. Using MDL technology and Chamonix's proprietary base, Genesel's new jawline treatment specifically targets the delicate skin around the neck and jaw for tight, healthy, younger-looking skin. Now, here's the thing. The results are guaranteed, or 100% of your money back, no questions asked. They're guaranteed. No questions asked if that doesn't work. But it will work. That's the point. And to start seeing results in 12 hours or less, Genesel Immediate Effects is also free. Order right now, and their legendary collagen builder is free, too. So call 800-SKIN-604, 800-SKIN-604, or go to Genesel.com. Get your two free gifts and free express shipping. Order now before the crazy offer is gone and summer's all over. Call 800-SKIN-604 or go to Genesel.com, 800-SKIN-604 or Genesel.com. Ken, Williamsburg, Virginia, on the Mark Levin app. How are you, sir? I'm good, Mark. Hey, thanks. Uh, pleasure to speak with you this morning, or this evening. I say you the morning. By the, by the way, I was there this weekend, Williamsburg. Oh, That's right, you were. I was out of town. I'm sorry I missed you. I ate, I ate at one of the pancake houses. By the way. Williamsburg has more pancake houses per square mile than any place I've ever seen on the face of the earth. I think that's I think that's actually recorded somewhere, but you're absolutely right about that. There you go. But uh, I said morning because I'm typically I listen to your show in the morning on your podcast. I'm a big fan. Thank you. Uh, so I was able to leave. I was able to hear your interview with Bandy with Dr. Bandy Lee this morning, mm-hmm. and it raised a question in my mind, and then an immediate couple got one of thoughts. minute. The question was, she never, or the thought, she never described what the danger she saw in the president was. And as she continued to speak, her comments reminded me of a slew of leaders that I served with in the military over the course of time, which led me to think that perhaps the problem is we're used to politicians instead of leaders that are that are geared toward uh, getting things Well done. said. Well said. She probably thinks every general is a nut job. I'll be right back. Thank you, sir. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Number 877-381-3811, You know, Joe Biden's son, Joe Biden's brother. The media should be all over them. We get a story here and there, like in Politico the other day. But nothing that's concentrated and repetitive. Joe Biden's younger brother... Politico, told potential business partners that the former vice president would help their firm land business with court systems and would incorporate their health care model into his 2020 presidential campaign. 
according to new allegations made in a court filing in Tennessee. The allegations are consistent with others made over the years that relatives of Joe Biden have sought to enrich themselves off his public service. You know, that's the difference between the Trumps and these people. Trump and his family come into office as self-made men and women, and they're mocked. Wow, they got a million for his father. Look at this sleazy stuff with the Bidens. Look at the sleazy stuff going on now with the Obamas and Gore and the Clintons. The Obamas are worth almost $200 million now. Gore, a quarter of a billion dollars. The Clintons together have made about a quarter of a billion dollars, playing off their prior public service. I can see what Trump did. There's buildings, there's golf courses, there's resorts, his name are on it. Tell me, Obama's name, other than on certain streets and buildings that he didn't build, what the hell did he produce? How about the Clintons and Gore? All together, nothing. The allegations are consistent with others made over the years that relatives of Biden have sought to enrich themselves off his private, uh, excuse me, public service. But they go further, representing the first explicit claims that James Biden offered to have the former vice president use his clout to further private business interests. Imagine if this guy's president of the United States. The allegations come in sworn declarations made by executives at firms suing Biden's brother that were filed in federal court on Friday. They don't allege any wrongdoing by Joe Biden or indicate the former vice president had knowledge of his brother's alleged promises. No, but the the dirt, it's like like Linus. The dirt and the dust, they're all around them. Neither George Meserays, a lawyer for James Biden, nor Andrew Bates, a spokesman for the Biden campaign, immediately responded to a request for comment on the new allegations. Now, the firms, Azam Medical Services and Diverse Medical Management, provide rural health care solutions. They sued James Biden and his business partners in June, claiming that beginning in 2017, the group offered disingenuously to partner with the firm's as part of a fraudulent scheme to bankrupt them and steal their business models. Now, everything that somebody files isn't necessarily accurate. When you file and you swear to it, and then you're deposed, and then you have to appear in court, assuming it goes that far, and you're subject to cross-examination, it could be a tough few days. In the Friday filing, three executives at the firm's alleged new details about their interactions with Joe Biden. According to one of the declarations by Diverse Medical Management CEO Michael Frey, James Biden suggested he would enlist his older brother's help in landing the firm contracts for court-ordered outpatient care. During my presentation regarding intensive outpatient treatment, James Biden interrupted me to say, my brother needs to have you in every court system in America, Frey alleges, adding, I left the meeting very excited and optimistic about the future of DMM. According to another declaration by Mohammed Azam, in the lead up to Biden's presidential campaign launch, James Biden promised in a phone call that the DMM psychiatric care model will be used by Joe Biden as part of his campaign. Azam alleges that in another phone call last fall, quote, James Biden mentioned that his brother's connections to labor unions, the Department of Veteran Affairs, 
would help DMN expand its model nationwide. Third declaration. Mitchell Cohen, diverse management, medical management's former general counsel, alleges that at a dinner outside of Philadelphia around early September 2018, James Biden said his brother's connections and Department of Veterans Affairs could help the firm land VA contracts. Cohen also alleged James Biden stated that he could facilitate contracts between DMM and first responders based on the relationships that his brother had with certain labor units. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Those allegations echo the accounts that former executives at Paradigm Global Advisors, a now-defunct hedge fund firm once owned by James Biden and the former Vice President's son, Hunter Biden, have previously given to Politico. The former Paradigm executive said James and Hunter spoke of their plans to capitalize on Joe Biden's ties to unions, including firefighters' unions, to land investments from union pension funds, although Paradigm did not successfully land such investments. In response to the original complaint, James Biden and his associates have denied engaging in any fraudulent scheme. Hmm. I wonder if they'll stay on top of that story. What do you think? And then there's this. This is from the Washington Examiner. Beckett Adams. That would be one T in Beckett, by the way. Want to know how to spot someone who is unaffected by the last recession? Look for the people who argue now that another economic disaster would be worth it if it means President Trump loses 2020 election. Now, you, uh, you suburban moms out there who are turning on Trump, I hope you pay attention to these issues I raise for the whole nation, but especially you. Because apparently you're taken in by the media and the left, according to the media and the left. Well, we don't really like the way uh, Donald Trump tweets. Well, that's very substantive of you. So the Democrats and their surrogates in the media and entertainment are pushing for a recession. The former chair of the Fed, listen to this, the former chairman of the New York Federal Reserve this week encouraged the central bank to refuse to play along, quote-unquote, with the president's trade war with China, arguing in a Bloomberg News opinion article that it would be worth risking a major economic downturn, a major economic downturn, if it means, quote, making it abundantly clear that Trump will own the consequences of his actions, unquote. I'm telling you, the personal hate for this man is like nothing you and I have ever seen. I understand and support Fed officials' desire to remain apolitical, but Trump's ongoing attacks on Powell, the Fed chairman, and on the institution have made that untenable, said Bill Dudley. Dudley! Dudley do wrong, Bill, writes this week. Now, you can't, listen, certain things you cannot question, you cannot criticize, even though the people still are a blood and flesh. Never, ever criticize a journalist no 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 never ever criticize a member of the federal reserve board no no can't do that now dudley do wrong that would be bill he had central bank officials face a choice enable the trump administration to continue down a disastrous path of trade war escalation or send a clear signal that if the administration does so, the president, not the Fed, will bear the risks, including the risk of losing the next election. 
So he's siding with the red Chinese, too, the communist Chinese. Which is why I've decided to bring on Michael Pillsbury on this program, who is one of the truly few definitive thinkers when it comes to communist China. And you might remember Michael Pillsbury. He is superb. He, uh, he was on uh, Life, Liberty, and Levin some months ago. Uh, and you reacted very strongly to what he had to say. And uh, as I say, he is a true expert on China. I'll be right back. Mark Levin. It's a pleasure to have Michael Pillsbury with us. The great book, The 100-Year Marathon. How are you, sir? Fine, thank you, Mark. Or doctor. Well, uh, doctor. What's that, doctor? Doctor, for you, yes. Do- doctor, well, yeah, I could use a doctor about now. Not necessarily uh, that kind of doctor. Uh, <laughs> doctor. all your books, Mark. Well, thank you. You know, it's a pleasure. And um, I want to ask you some questions. Uh I kind of think the president is pretty much playing it right with China. Agree or disagree? Agree. And is there other, are there other things he might want to do, or should he just sit back now and see how these tariffs and other things take hold? Uh, I think he's got a menu of options, of ways to escalate. The Chinese themselves use the word escalate today in a news story. They have been quite nasty since uh, the last three or four days. So I think they're still listening to some of the Obama people and Clinton people who have been reassuring China that this is all bluff or the president is erratic and just, you know, just wait for the Democratic president a year from now. I think they're misreading the President Trump's determination. So I do think he's considering additional escalation steps he could take. And what additional, first of all, two points. What escalation could China take? I mean, our economy is twice the size of theirs. And then the next question is, are Clinton and Obama people, other than going on TV, actually advising that government? Well, I wouldn't say advising because that makes it a felony if they advise a foreign government for pay and if they don't register as foreign agents. It's a five-year prison sentence. Uh, The Justice Department, by the way, is enforcing that law more now than Mm -hmm. before. So I wouldn't say advising. I would say they're giving their opinions to their Chinese friends. <laughs> Here in the United States, and then they take them back, I guess. No, they visit Beijing, actually. Really? Quite a, yeah, China, ever since uh, China surpassed us in the number of billionaires, China now has more billionaires than we do. Our billionaires, have made, some of them have made a practice of going over to China several times a year. The Chinese even convene meetings where President Xi Jinping will sit there with 10 or 15 CEOs and billionaires and kind of issue announcements to them that they're expected to go home to America and write op-ed pieces and give speeches to echo President Xi's uh, views. Uh, Usually it's Xi will claim that China is for free trade, China is against protectionism, and President Trump is disrupting the world order, so everybody should support China and oppose this trade war. It's pretty wild. It's like a topsy-turvy uh, upside-down view of reality. But our mm-hmm. executives feel under enormous pressure. You know, that's one of the issues of the, the whole trade talks has been the coercion that's put on our companies to hand over their crown jewels of technology, uh, which some of them have done. 
Now, if they've done that, don't they violate export control regimes? Sometimes, uh, but actually, usually the most advanced technology hasn't been listed yet on the export control list. Things like artificial intelligence and really advanced robotics, uh, bioengineering. There's actually discoveries in, let's say, in Silicon Valley, where a joint venture will be started by China, where they get access to some of the most recent and sophisticated technology in the world before it's on the export control list. Well, there's got to be a way to fix that, don't you think? Well, a lot of it is to start the process that Peter Thiel has talked about, uh, that we just need to talk about what China is up to. A lot of Americans still don't understand, that, or they think it's uh, an exaggeration when someone like me or you says this is a struggle for global technological supremacy, that their economy could in fact surpass us. The president said several times now, uh, I saw him on the Steve Hilton show, but on others too, he has said if Hillary Clinton had won, China would surpass the American economy during her term, but it's not going to happen on my watch. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think it's quite important to understand, that, and the Chinese don't yet, how serious the president is about this. I think he's, his view, even as recently as today, I think his view is that if the Chinese try to stall, uh, hoping for a Democrat, uh, they will still have to sign after the election, which he intends to win. And the deal may be even tougher for them than if they'd come around now, the next month or two. The Chinese really don't know what to do about this man, do they? <laughs> That's right. They receive conflicting advice. And... I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't want to say all China experts, but the vast majority of American China experts also oppose what President Trump's trying to do. So they kind of work for China indirectly. And that confuses the Chinese because they've relied for decades now on China experts like me to tell them what's going on. So mm -hmm. I've been over there six times now since the president was elected. I've met some of their experts on President Trump, and they've been quite candid with me about how confused they are. <laughs> Now, um, is there a struggle, you think, going on in the highest levels of, of uh, Chinese government and politics at some point here? In other uh, words, that maybe Xi overstepped? It's hard to say. My own book, as you know, is about mm -hmm. the hawks in Beijing, who we've neglected over the last 20 or 30 years, understanding just how powerful they are. But there's this mystery of how the 150-page draft trade agreement, which was pretty good, was ready to be signed, basically, back in May. And then suddenly the Chinese reneged on all the key provisions, the legally binding provisions. And the mystery is, uh, why did that happen? How can talks go on for a year and then suddenly the positions be reversed? And it looks like some of the hawks, the Minister of Commerce is a good example, who had not been very involved in the talks, all of a sudden they may have weighed in and said to President Xi, look, we've got to... This guy is a master negotiator. Uh, we've got to renege and see what happens. And now they found out. They made the president angry. And he raised tariffs quickly, within 24 hours. Now he's raised them again. And as I say, there's additional steps he can take. Uh, however, as long as other Americans, not you and me, Mark, but other Americans, tell the Chinese, oh, this guy's erratic, you know, he doesn't really mean it, just wait for Joe Biden or Elizabeth Warren, the Chinese are going to pack themselves into a corner and not will, will not have an agreement when it was so close back in May. Are you able to tell us one or more steps that our president could take if he needed to? 
if he wanted to. Well, I can give you my personal yeah. uh, observations. Uh, they, China gets a lot of benefit from our investments in China uh, and from our companies who operate there. So obviously, if what is called decoupling begins to occur and the companies relocate their production lines and their high-tech to other countries, that hurts China, perhaps more than just the trade issues. The other thing is, as you now, know... Now, hold on. Let me stop there, Michael. Let me ask you this. So how does the president encourage companies to do that? Well, on, the, on their own, the companies may come to the conclusion mm-hmm. there's just too much uncertainty and friction going on. There's and if China, uh, if China invades Hong Kong, that might underscore the point, don't you think? Yes, but not for the big companies. Yeah. Uh, I noticed when the Tiananmen, uh, let's call it a massacre, took place 30 years ago, it uh, didn't really affect U.S. companies very much. We didn't have anything like the level of trade and investment that we do now. But there's other things that are helping China that... Can you, can you hold on till after the bottom hard break here? All right. Dr. Michael Pillsbury, absolutely fascinating and brilliant. His book is The 100-Year Marathon. It's been out a few years, and I want to return. We'll be right back. Levin, the great one. The great one, Mark Levin. Dial in now, 877-381-3811. Congress may be out of session. That doesn't mean politicians and bureaucrats have stopped plotting ways to increase government's control over our health care system. HHS is busy pushing international price controls. What does that mean? Well, that means that they'll only buy the medicines for those on Medicare that are as cheap as the ones in Europe. Now, guess what? They're cheap because Europe's socialist countries aren't willing to pay the latest and greatest in medicine. And over in the Senate, Republican Senator Chuck Rashley said in an interview that Senate staffers have set the stage with House Democrats to negotiate a prescription drug bill that puts price controls on the Medicare Part D. Now, filled with these socialist ideas, the bill would be a major step in making up, make us look more like the European countries that Democrats idolize despite the fact they're rationing care and restricting access to needed treatments. You see, nobody leaves the United States to go for health care in Germany, France, or Britain. Nobody leaves Canada. Nobody runs to Canada for health care. They all come to America. Now, these arbitrary price controls would eliminate investment for the breakthrough treatments people hope for. Now, we've got to hope McConnell stands up for sound-principled health care reform, and not fall for a Democrat trap towards socialized medicine and a government-run health care system. Get the facts. Go to TrueHealthCareFacts.com, TrueHealthCareFacts.com. That's TrueHealthCareFacts.com. My guest, Dr. Michael Pillsbury, the book, The 100-Year Marathon. Dr. Pillsbury, uh, you had, we had dis- were discussing that uh, some of the tools, additional tools the president might have, including some of these private companies, leaving China to go to more secure, more predictable uh, countries that have, you know, laws and, that, and compliance so they can set up their assembly lines and so forth. What else? Well, the Chinese benefit enormously by American private investment. It goes through two channels. One is we let them uh, float their national champions, their state-owned companies, on, on Wall Street. And we give a waiver uh, through the Securities and Exchange Commission 
that the Chinese companies do not have to pass normal accounting standards. Wow. This is an, extra- this is an extraordinary waiver. Uh, no one else gets this. And no one knows exactly, but way over $1 trillion of U.S. capital purchases these Chinese stocks. Let me stop uh, you there. Only- I-, I want you to continue. Let me stop. Who made that decision? Do we know? Uh, that's, I think there's some people scrambling right now to say they didn't make it. <laughs> it was a long time ago, shall we say. <laughs> yeah. That is stunning. Far, far away. Yeah, I bet. The other channel is private equity, and that may be even bigger than what goes through the stock market. Uh, the private equity is not really regulated, but it's very sensitive to attitudes, to friction, uncertainty. So exposing some of the private equity deals uh, could go a long way. Frankly, there's a a rather specific uh, uh, set of magazines and journalists that cover this. So it was quite interesting to me just last week, the Chinese very uh, craftily, I think, offered five American investment banks the opportunity to come into China if they registered by Friday. They could come into China and operate freely in the Chinese investment bank system. And then it named into the banks. It said J.P. Morgan... Uh, Goldman Sachs, you know, mm-hmm. went through one by one. And if you look at the uh, speeches by the CEOs or retired CEOs of these companies, they've been remarkably uh, unsupportive of President Trump Damn. and the, the trade war. Now, this so, is amazing. Can the president himself address this uh, issue of the Chinese bypassing normal accounting principles? Um, I think it's really a matter for the House and Senate committees to ask the Securities and Exchange Commission Chairman Jay Clayton, what is the what is the history of this decision? Uh, did it begin under when we were had much closer and better relations with China? That would be the, the proper way to approach it. I think a number of senators have already raised this question with, in letters to the administration. There's, you know, you there's know, a, there's, a, there's another area that's even yeah. more scary, Mark, and that is the the pension funds of state governments, workers, federal government workers, the so-called thrift savings plan that all federal workers contribute to. That all that money, which is again over a trillion dollars, that money is eligible and in many cases goes to Chinese companies, either through the stock market or other means. So the level to which we are funding China's effort to surpass us uh, needs to be calculated. It may not be um, clear to the last decimal point, but it's obviously way over a trillion dollars. And there's yet another area, which is the federal government, our government, since the days of Jimmy Carter, has had a, assistance programs for China. That's why our embassy in Beijing is our largest embassy. It's got 2,300 staff. Jeez. More than 50, More than 50 federal agencies are in our embassy in Beijing with various assistance programs to China to help with labor or agriculture or whatever their counterpart is. All this could be looked at in the future. And yet there's this built-in fifth column, Michael, in our own country that seems to be rooting for the wrong side. Am I missing well, uh, something? They, have, they haven't awakened yet, let's put it that way. <laughs> but what you're telling me as I listen to this, I think about Reagan and the Soviet Union. Yes. It sounds to me... Like, we have the capacity to bring down their entire damn economy. 
if we had the political will and a widespread sense of threat from China, but we don't really have that sense of public concern yet, I don't think. Part of the problem is uh, uh, the Chinese very carefully control visas for our media and for our scholars. Think I could ever get in there? (laughs) I'm sure you'd get a limousine come to the airport and pick you up. And never come back. You may remember Reagan's famous evil empire speech. He used the phrase phenomenology of evil. And he conveyed the idea that on the one hand, the Soviet Union is strong and mighty and and our global equal in some ways, at least in nuclear weapons. But on the other hand, a system built on evil has its own internal weaknesses. So what the president seems to be doing, as far as I can understand his thinking, he is gradually ratcheting up the pressure on China that stop this theft, stop the coercion of our companies, play fair, and we can have a better relationship. We can increase Chinese-American trade. We can increase investment in each other's economies. He's not called China an enemy, but their, their reaction has not been forthcoming, shall we say. Do you think it'll ever be forthcoming? <laughs> I think at some point... They're going to crack, yes. But I think the president's thinking is that this may not be until after he wins re-election, and they realize that uh, Joe Biden or Elizabeth Warren are not going to come along and save them. <laughs> but this this is scary, because if he doesn't win re-election, you have countries like China and, quite frankly, Iran and North Korea who are rooting, of course, for the Democrats and Russia. Yes, I'm afraid that's true, and that's why what I advocate is more attention or as Peter Thiel calls it, more talking about the realities of China. A lot of people, Mark, think that this trade dispute is just over minor things, you know, cheating on, the word cheating sometimes even implies, you know, you add an extra 10% here and there. It's not about that at all. I think the president's view is about global supremacy. Who is going to be the leader of the world for the next 100 years or longer? He wants it to be America. The Chinese have been pretty clear they don't want it to be America. They want it to be China. It's amazing, uh, Dr. Pillsbury, as I, as I listen to you, but as I cover other issues each and every day, how many people in this country are actually rooting against it? I, I have never seen anything like this. Have you? Uh, no. Even in the days of the Cold War, we had a lot of detente types and people who wanted to get along with the Soviet Union, but, but they didn't have the kind of investment and trade and access to our system that China does. Well, this is uh, frightening, but it, but what's but what's invigorating is that the president of the United States is on to this. He's a tough guy. He's not, you know. I I don't think Xi and the others. I don't think I don't think they understood how tough this guy is, and, and quite frankly, how how smart and wily he is. I think that's correct, and I think they're beginning to understand. But how much longer it may take? Uh, I was quite happy today to hear this internal poll that the farmers of the United States, a fairly large sample was asked, would you vote for President Trump if the election was held today? And 67% said yes. Good. It's gone up in the last, uh, over the past year. So the, our, our left-wing media likes to have farmers come on and cry and say Trump is ruining my life. But it looks like the polls show something quite different. The farmers are really quite patriotic and don't want Chinese global domination. And the interesting thing is, John Lott told me, he's not only a gun expert, he's an economist, and he told me 
these these various uh, you know uh, corn grain so forth and so on it's like water they will find their markets and mm-hmm. and so this is why the Japanese stepped in and said you know what we'll we'll take those soybeans and others are going to step in and say uh, you know we want corn we want wheat just a matter of building these new markets and in the end I think the president's right it's going to be the Chinese and the Chinese government that is harmed because we yes. have excess produce and they don't. Well, and there's a lot of specific programs the president has begun. The $16 billion this year, $12 billion last year for farmers. The crop insurance farm bill. Um, so it's just a series of better, the USMCA replacing NAFTA helps farmers get better markets in Canada and Mexico. As you mentioned, this new Japan trade deal that the left-wing media is ignoring. That's really going to boost uh, Japanese purchases of corn. Mm-hmm. So there's a positive story to be told to our farmers. Uh, even rolling back regulations helps <laughs> helps farmers. So uh, that's let me, the, let me, let me ask the, you a personal question. The Chinese see the farmers as the key, though. They think if they can turn the farmers against the president, then he'll lose. Uh, he'll lose the re- the reelection. Yes. Let me ask you this question: You. Uh, when Donald Trump was running, I don't know if you were a supporter, not so sure, and so forth. Have you grown increasingly impressed with him, as I have? Yes. I was a Ted Cruz foreign policy As side. was I. You oh, know. you were? How about that? Yeah, official member of the committee. I met with Senator Cruz many times. I thought he's brilliant. I especially liked his Princeton debating <laughs> skills. Mm-hmm. But over time, President Trump has convinced me that at least for dealing with China, he's got the feistiness and just the old-fashioned grit to take on China, which is the second largest economy in the world. Mm -hmm. I think Ted Cruz would have done a pretty good job, too. I'm not betraying Senator Cruz, but wow. Plus, uh, President Trump's got a remarkable sense of humor. The people who (laughs) meet with him in person just can't get over it, how witty and quick he is. He's totally different than the media portray him. Totally different. Yes, they don't know the man, and they don't want to know the man. As you know, I saw him today, and I yeah. think these nicknames he uses are just brilliant. You know, they capture <laughs> the essence of a person. I used to like Jeb Bush until I heard the, the term low-energy Jeb. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Michael Pillsbury, Michael, I want to thank you. You'll always edify us, and God bless you, my friend. Thank you, Mark. All right, <laughs> care of yourself. He's great. He's brilliant. And I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Or as we like to say, here I be. Don't forget I'll be on Hannity in about 40 minutes just for you, my wonderful Levinites. Uh, I think I'm supposed to be talking about the media. I'm not sure, but I'm going to bring some surprises. You're going to want to see them. I'm going to bring some surprises. Jim, San Francisco, California, the great KSFO. Go. Hello, Mark. Um, after our Yellow. last train Yellow. wreck phone Yellow. conversation, I appreciate your uh, taking my call. Um, yes. Uh, I wanted to just bring up a point I was going to bring up a year or so ago. Uh, George Orwell said something very interesting in a book that he wrote called Homage to Catalonia, which was about his experience during the Spanish Civil War. Um, He said that his group, a radical group, they were all radical leftists, uh, was being 
attacked by the communists in Spain, but also in the press across Europe, except in England. He said in England, the communists didn't dare publish false facts about them because England had a libel law. Mm, uh, still does, that by got the way. Me, That got me to thinking about New York Times versus Sullivan, and what I wanted to ask you a year ago was why the abolition of New York Times versus Sullivan wasn't one of the uh, Liberty Amendments. <clears throat> Uh, and, and the also, abolition of the well, I can't have twenty-five liberty amendments. The point of the liberty amendments is to reduce the size of the federal government, not address all the Supreme Court rulings. That's why. Yeah, that, I understand that. There, there's one other point I wanted to make New York Times about New York Times, and it's just a it's just a, a whimsical thought. Uh, I think they got the policy wrong. If you're going to have a two-tier libel uh, system. Um, it seems to me that the public figures, the politicians, uh, ought to have a lower bar rather than a higher bar. I mean, if, if, an, if an unknown private person gets libeled... I understand that. I don't agree with it. They ought to have the same bar uh, under their law. That's the whole point. That's what we mean by equality. Uh, when, you're, when, when you're suing a public official and you're destroying their reputation... Uh, you're destroying the reputation of a human being. When you're suing a plumber and destroying their rep, I mean, uh, smearing a plumber and destroying their reputation, same thing. All right, I do understand your point. I just disagree with it. Thank you, sir. Now, demand letters from the IRS are hitting the mail. If you owe back taxes, you may be receiving one soon. When it arrives, you better be wearing your depends. And by the way, you all have questions like, is it true the IRS can garnish my paycheck? Yes. Can the IRS really take my home and bank accounts? Yes. Can they take my retirement savings? Yes. The IRS can do that and a hell of a lot more, but there's a way out. It's called the Fresh Start Initiative, an official government program for tax debt assistance. And nobody knows more about the Fresh Start Initiative than the award-winning experts at Optima Tax Relief. Optima's mission is to stand between you and the IRS, fighting to help protect your paycheck and assets and helping you get the best possible deal. But don't delay, because the IRS can tack on hefty penalties and interests every day. Call Optima right now for your free consultation. Free consultation while you still have options. Call 800-499-6300. 800-499-6300. That's 800-499-6300. Some restrictions apply. For complete details, visit Optima Tax Relief. All right, let's see here. Oh, my screen's back. Bob, Batavia, New York, XM Satellite, go. It's an honor. You're, you're a national treasure, Mark. It's just a, a real honor to talk to you. First time caller. Long Thank time you, listener. sir. I just want to, yes, I want to, that interview was brilliant. I was really impressed. Oh, you mean uh, with Dr. Lee? Yes, yes, sir. I mean, you were respectful yet firm, and I kept thinking, now he's going to say something. She's going to hang up. I was but grinding you, my teeth. Trust me. <laughs> you, but you, you were just, it was, I was really impressed. Real, it was brilliant. Now, I want to ask you a question. You've yes, probably sir. been asked this before. Um, so have you ever, you know, there's millions of people that love you, and it's, it's a huge family, uh, of the Mark LeVan family. And Thank you. Have, have you ever considered, maybe in, 2024, uh, running for no. president. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, you know, I wouldn't want that. 2024? Who knows? I might be running from the president. You never know who's yeah. going to be in there. 
I know, I know. Well, my prayer is that uh, that he stays in there. You know, I want although to you know what. If uh, Bernie Sanders and Biden can run when they're, you know, 112, maybe I can. You never know. But thank you, Bob. I appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, we salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, and emergency personnel. And all of you out there are helping the country. Law enforcement. I'll see you on Hannity in 30 minutes now. And I'll see you tomorrow. God bless you. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.